Uh, we're in, obviously, Exodus. We're still moving forward. And I'll put up the same map as before because we're going to be walking this journey. I call this on the move or complaining in the wilderness. And this segment, and just kind of an idea, we've kind of left with all the plagues. We had the tension at the Red Sea and the crossing. And now we're moving down. This is closing out chapter 15. And when I say time in the wilderness, we're going to be from here down to Mount Sinai encompasses about three chapters. And part of this we'll do this week and we'll deal with a lot of complaining. And next week we'll deal with their battle with the Malachites and then also Jethro coming and some of the information we see there as they set up to be at Mount Sinai, which we're going to receive the law there. We're going to see God speak. We're going to see them engage in uh, wicked sin. We're going to see the tabernacle given and constructed. And we're going to walk our way through that. Leading up to Easter, we're going to be dealing with this movement to Sinai. So just in your mind, kind of take it in segments. They're in Egypt, and then we have the tension. This is part of the Exodus at the Red Sea. And then we're just dealing with complaining in the wilderness is what I call it. Though next week will be more of a getting situated and some conversation. And if you're wondering, how does his father-in-law know where he's at? Here's Midian. This is all areas that they would have worked and lived in. And so later on in 18, we're going to see Jethro come with Moses' children and wife and a reconnection there. But we're diving into this idea of complaining. And I just love to set it up front. There's some questions I'll ask that you're welcome. And I'm hoping you'll answer as we dive in and look at complaining in general. Uh, But I'm hoping that we can connect it to our life and to what we do and what complaining really is and who complaining is against. But I put as a question, who here enjoys listening to complaining? Anyone say, you know what? When I take a long trip, I love when the kids start complaining about an hour and a half into an eight-hour trip, but how sick they are driving, how tired they are, or anything else that's under there. So nobody there. Who here has ever complained? Now, where's the liars that have not raised their hand? Eric, you need to put your hand. I'll be honest, I have complained about Eric just a little bit. due to his poor selection of restaurants. But we're not going to hold that against you forever. It'll just be about 10 to 15 years before we trust your judgment ever again. And really, it wasn't Eric's fault, but we want to pick somebody to blame. So out of 12 guys, someone gets the short straw, and it was Eric. Um, But we've all complained before. Uh, The fact is, and this is what's interesting about complaining, it reveals our heart and often has deeper spiritual implications or indications than we realize. And what we're going to see from the nation of Israel is what I'm hoping to drive to is where their heart is and what they complain about. Um, Israel has crossed the Red Sea and they crossed it miraculously. This wasn't a a bunch of pontoon boats that came along and, and ferried them across. It was a miraculous opening of the sea. Scripture is very clear. Uh, it, it fascinates me how... Uh, how many commentators will wrestle with how natural this could or would have maybe been, and it makes no sense. There's no wind in the world that's going to create a tunnel, and blowing a, a unidirectional wind across the land is not going to create a tunnel or, or a walkway that has water walled up on each side. And so it's commentators that don't want to just read Scripture for Scripture's value. It's a miraculous 
crossing of the Red Sea, that God used his own creation to do something miraculous, well, that doesn't change the miracle of it. Uh, I'm not a proponent of taking the supernatural out of Scripture. Actually, Thomas Jefferson was a big proponent of that. And if what we read about him is true, he's an unsaved man. He, he, you know, he was not saved. He wrote a Bible taking out all the miracles. But they crossed the Red Sea through a tunnel here, and they miraculously watched something else, and that was the drowning of Egyptian sh- soldiers. And, and don't lose sight of this. They're the greatest military in the world pretty much at that time, or at least in the Israelites' known world. These are the mighty warriors, and they've watched that destruction. And I want to lay the framework because we roll into the wilderness and we encounter a different set of problems that are going to come up. And as they march into the wilderness, we find, I put a complaint about water. So I hope you see this. We're going to be a Mara, Eliam, wilderness of sin, which is just an unfortunate name for a wilderness. And then Raphidim, and then we'll be ending up near Mount Sinai. And we're going to watch them struggle through these areas. It is. Complain about water, complain about food, complain about water again. That's how I list their complaining. Um, So here we dive into complaint about water. The location is Mara. That's that first one at the top. Uh, I'm going to mispronounce it, but Ayin Hawara is what they would think the location is today. They've pinpointed it, and we'll see that when we get to Elium and the oasis that it is. We'll start seeing that there's some historical places it can tie into. I put down here, have you ever done something great for the kids? It's going well. And then out of the blue, one of them comments on a negative. You ever had that one? It's like you take them on vacation, you're in Disney World, and they complain about a line to get Mickey Mouse ice cream. I mean, you're buying, you're there, you're waiting in line, and someone's like, well, these lines are ridiculous. And I always put down... um, If you're at home and that happens, right? Say you have a special Saturday, you you plan an outing or you're going to do something fun or just a relaxed day and somebody complains, and I put this down, nothing compels a parent to chore giving like those moments. I don't know about you as a parent, when when my kids complain about something good, I'm like, well, and my favorite thing is to say, there's weeds to pull in the yard, so go ahead. That's time to start weed pulling. Uh, It's only actually acted on that one time for two of my boys, and it made the point that day. I mean, they didn't want to complain anymore at all. Um, Israel is in the midst of victory, and I want you to remember that. We're not that far past this victory at the Red Sea. The military that they feared, this was their number one fear. Egypt is going to come get us, and they've watched Egypt get wiped out, drowned in front of their eyes, And somehow within three days, they're fixated on a problem. And I just want to bring us right back. What just happened three days ago? Miracle, cross the sea. And with what did God work? Water, wind. But he's used his creation. He's proven his ability to them. If if the plagues weren't enough... You've just watched God handle water in a miraculous way, drowned your number one threat, you're in the wilderness, and I'm going to keep pointing to it like a map is going to be there, and you're going to start complaining or fixating on a problem. We don't have enough water. I put here, is it a big jump to think that God could work a water miracle again? 
if he's just done it, is that a leap? Is that a big leap for somebody? Would that be a big leap for you? If you watch someone lift a thousand pounds and you think a couple days later, I wonder if they can lift it again, what's your first thought? Sure, sure why not? They did it once before. I, I could see that it's not a stretch. I understand being thirsty. I'm just saying in the context of where they are, they're complaining about water. Now, they focus on Moses, but who are they really questioning? And sorry, we're in chapter 15, and I have read it, and I didn't read it, so I'm going to do that now. Uh, chapter 15, 22 through 27, it says this, So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of shore, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, which when he had cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them. In other words, he showed God would take care of it. And said, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and will do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. And they came to Eliam, where were twelve wells of water, and threescore and ten palm trees, and they encamped there by the waters. And so, sorry I didn't read that, because I would have given a lot of context to fixating on a problem uh, before we got to it. Um, they focus on Moses, but who are they really questioning? God. And what are they questioning? What are they saying to God? It showed their what of God, you think? Distrust. Exactly. That's actually the word I wrote down in my notes. What's going to happen? Where's the drink? They don't trust God to come through. And I put this as we start on complaining, and trust me, we're going to go do this all night long about complaining. Don't miss that about complaining, grumbling, and a lot of our communication. We need to be discerning in seeing or interpreting what we say and who it is actually questioning or doubting. We may say something to Moses in context, where is my drink? And what they're communicating to Moses is, we don't trust God to supply us. He got us through the Red Sea. He annihilated Egypt and saved us. We watched this. We watched the people who had oppressed us for 400 plus years, force us out of their country, give us amazing wealth, pursue us, die, and we still don't trust him. And I mention this as we dive into complaining, as we move on to the food and then water again. As you find yourself complaining or grumbling about life, you want to identify, and this is something that, that I don't say go to your spouse and say, I have identify what your complaining is about. Your complaining is against God. I'm positive of one thing. You have an argument on your hands that you most likely will lose. Uh, just an FYI, but be discerning of yourself. How often is my complaining, the things I'm grumbling about, my frustrations, how often are they not just circumstantial complaining, but deep-rooted to that is a distrust in God, is a complaint against God, because I'm undermining what He will do, what He can do, what He's promised. Uh, I put this, doing so will help us confront our sinful attitudes and perspectives. 
Here's an observation. We can deal with real things in life. Um, you can deal with loss. You can deal with emotional turmoil. You can deal with financial struggles. And those things in and of themselves are not sinful. They're a part of living in a world that's broken and we wrestle through things. How we deal with them is either right or wrong. And so as we wrestle with how we look at it, how we respond to it. So if I'm in traffic and I'm stuck and it's making me late, that in and of itself is not sinful. If I'm screaming in my car at the cars in front of me, that is what? Sinful. But what if I'm just frustrated at all the people in my way? I'm really expressing frustration and see how the deeper spiritual side of that with how God has orchestrated the day and the sovereignty of God and his providence and what's unfolding. And as believers, we need to think deeper about how we express and how we complain and how we talk about our circumstances. It reveals what we're really thinking. Now, their complaint also reveals their misguided view of themselves as well. Where is my water? We were talking, Avery, um, I bring the kids water. I don't know why we start these things that I keep doing forever. Uh, I started with Landon when he was a kid. We used to hum this song. I won't start because then I have to finish it. It's almost compulsive. Um, We hummed this song for 10 years, Heather and I did, in unison in his room with him and then Aniston And then Trenton heard it, and we said, no more with this song. (laughs) I'm done with it. My younger two, though, love a little Dixie cup of water. Well, it took me five years to get Heather to do Dixie cups before it was like a glass of water. I felt like that. What is that one who and the one Christmas one? He is bringing glasses of water to all his kids. That's my chore. Um, It seems that they want water from my hand. It doesn't work as well from Heather's uh, or anyone else's, though Clayton does prefer to get his own water because he gets it from the fridge and I get it from the sink and he has distinguished a difference in water. But Avery developed a habit. And I do, I really, if I watch the movie, I really feel like the guy bringing glasses of water and juggling it and, and they don't care if I've fallen off a ladder or whatever else, they want their water um, from my hand. Um, here's what's fascinating to me. Avery, and she rarely does this, I would expect this from the boys, But she started doing this. She's laying in bed, and I'm hoping they forget, and I've learned they never do. And she'll say one word, water. (laughs) And I look at her, and I said, no, that's you've crossed the line. You can say, may I have some water, please? But you still need to add the please, because I will put you to bed thirsty if you do the water. And she's not trying to be mean. And so she looks at me like a wounded little teddy bear. I'm heartless. I brought too much water over the years. I'm like, no, you're going to least say please. If you're going to vocalize this need. But what, is, what does that express? Why would I not want her to say water? Right? Demanding. Demanding, which makes her feel like she what? She is entitled to this. I mean, you've done this for six years, 365 times six, not counting leap years. It's there. The only time I get out of this is if I'm traveling. I haven't traveled in two years. So... It is, it is there. But when she says water, I'm like, no, say please. If a kid walks up and says candy, they're not getting candy. You know, they've got to ask, at least pretend to be polite and not be elites. Well, when you look at the nation of Israel here in this first water contest, not only are they misguided in their complaint, but they go to Moses and say, what are we going to drink? 
Give us water. Water. Just think of it that way. And so here's what's interesting. They need to be reminded of their status. And I've, I've put this, have you ever noticed, overconfidence due to connection? Um, a small guy runs his mouth because he has a strong friend. What happens to the small guy after a while? He starts thinking he is a strong guy because he has strong friend, and that connection makes him think that he suddenly is strong guy. When does that perspective change for the small guy? There you go. When big guy's not around anymore to protect him. And here's what's happened. Um, they have assumed arrival with God, and they have assumed that they're okay with God, and they don't need to do anything anymore. They just sit back and demand, water, give me. This is what I get. And so I find this fascinating. God reminds them that he wants to be or to see active obedience. And he, and he does that in this one in 26. I find this fascinating. They say water, they get water, and then God says something they never ask about. He says, hey, by the way, if you'll listen to me and you do what's right in my sight and you give ear, which means to obey his commands and keep all of his commands, and I want you to notice something about this. If you remain actively obedient, I won't put what on you? What kind of diseases? The ones that happened to Egypt, which they're assuming will never happen to them. And I want you to realize something, that in the midst of their complaint, they also had become arrogant about their status with God and said, we're fine. We can do what we want. And what they're acting like is many gods. We're fine. Give me water. We're okay. And God says, here's the water. And by the way, if you'll actively obey me, I won't plague you like I just plagued Egypt. Why did God plague Egypt? What was Egypt doing against God? Disobeying. What did God say? Let my what? And what did Pharaoh say? No. Rebelling against God. And what is God teaching his own chosen people? Obey me. You don't get a pass. You don't get to walk right past these commands. You don't get to assume a status. God wants obedience. And so in the midst of one of their first complaints, and again, I'll keep thinking there's a map behind me, uh, in the midst of their first complaint in the wilderness, they are shown that not only are they distrustful of God, but they're also arrogant, and God's going to remind them of their status. I put here, how quick do our blinders go on and we begin to complain against God? How quickly do we think we've arrived and are above obedience and permitted distrust of God? How many of us think it's okay to distrust God? That we give ourselves a circumstance that gives us permission to act in a way that doesn't trust God and then think that is okay with God, to forget his desire. God says this, beware. Be engaged in the battle against sin. Do not assume you're above it and indulge in the first thought of distrust like you have a legitimate reason for it. God's not being ugly when he says, if you obey me, I'll heal you. I'll keep you from the diseases. But obedience is not manifested in distrust of God. 
and you've just shown distrust. Well, sadly, on the road to Mount Sinai, I'm just going to put the map back because it's going to kill me. Um, On the road to Mount Sinai, uh, we're not going to see them blunder this once. Um, This one misguided attack against Moses and ultimately God. Because as the congregation moves from Mara to Eliam, and that's Wadi Gerundel, and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it, but you can look those up. That should locate you a little bit on a physical map. There are 12 springs of water, 70 palm trees, and everything's great. So we go to bitter to sweet water to an oasis here, a short distance away where there's 12 springs of water, big trees. That's what the word means, these beautiful trees that are there. And so everything is great. And then they move from here. And I want you to notice, kind of ignore this place here with the question mark. The wilderness of sin encompasses a huge trunk of their journey to Raphidim. And so we're going to be now in the wilderness again. We went through a wilderness here tomorrow where the water was bitter. We went through a place like a desert, and then we get somewhere and the water's no good. Then we go to a place the water's good, everything's fine. Why would I complain if everything's the way I like it? Now we're in a chunk of space that's quite the, the wilderness again. And the wilderness of sin And that's just the name for it, not that that's full of sin there. And what we get in chapter 16, 1 through 36, is a complaint about food. Let me give you the background. This complaint ramps the negativity up a bit more. They move from distrust and fixating on a problem to actual attack on God's character. I want to read verses 1 through 3, and I want you to kind of see why this is now not just a distrust of God, but now accusing God of almost vindictive behavior or manipulative behavior or cruel behavior. And I want to throw this out there, and I don't want you to feel guilty about it. I want you to feel discerning. How many of us feel like, and and I'll be be honest myself, so I'm reading Job, we're going through Job. It's not the most um, uplifting of books in the sense of how it makes you feel. And one of the things that I have to combat as I study it, this is in myself personally, is the other shoe dropping. Have you ever had that mentality? You're waiting for God to give you Job-like circumstance. You're like, okay, so who am I going to lose? And what's going to happen? And what's going to be terrible? And it's this, and, and, and it's dangerous. Job's going to fall into this. It, is you start thinking of God the wrong way. Like God's going to give you Murphy's Law, right? It's just going to be the way it happens. Or something bad. If I study Job, something bad's going to happen. And this is Israel's mentality here. And that's what they're tossing out. So I'm going to read it. And they took their journey from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came into the wilderness of sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. And we're going to ignore Raphidim at the moment, but we'll be there. On the 15th day of the second month after the departing out of the land of Egypt. So we've been on the road about a month now. And the whole congregation of children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Now they've added another person to the list. And the children of Israel said unto them, Would to God we had died by the hand of God in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots and when we did eat bread to the full, for ye have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And I want you to get a picture of what they're saying. One, I want you to think about this. What food was actually left in Egypt? (laughs) We've had locusts, we've had hail, we've had death, disease, firstborn cattle dying, cattle just dying from hail, everything under wasteland scenario. 
So you're looking back at Egypt and saying, man, I wish I would have been killed by God. At least I would have been eating meat. Now I want you to flash back because I want you to get a gist of what they're saying. Last plague, plague number 10. What was it? Firstborn is what? What happened to them? They died. Did that happen to the nation of Israel? No. So let me play this in your mind. You're sitting and you're hungry. Remember, they have all their livestock. They're not going to die tomorrow. They're hungry. They don't want to kill their livestock. But it's not like they've eaten everything they have. They haven't touched what they have. Now, if they ate everything they have, it wouldn't last long. I give them that. But they're not at the point of falling over dead from hunger. They sit down and tell Moses and Aaron, who is in their family still? Who's alive? That's not alive in Egypt. Firstborn children. I would rather, God, that you plague me like you plagued the Egyptians, and they're looking into the face of their firstborn child and saying, I'd rather you be dead and me eating than to be in this desert and worried about my belly being full. Do you get a picture of the personality type there? You see, it's not just they're hungry, and what do we call that? They're not hangry, they're not biting out because they're super hungry, give them a bite to eat, and they'll all calm down. That these people are literally looking at Moses and Aaron and saying, I'd rather have lost my firstborn and sat there and die with the Egyptians than to feel a little bit of hunger here in the wilderness. Again, in a layer of distrust, But now they're saying to God, you just brought us out here to die in the wilderness of hunger. I would rather died of a plague than of hunger. Well, as always, the Lord is not surprised by their statements. By the way, he's not surprised by yours either when we make those. And we find the ready and perfect answer from the God. What is it? Verses 4 through 10. And by the way, this is when we get manna. We also get quail. Manna is permanent. Quail is temporary. And we'll see quail come back again, and there they're going to get, what is it, vomited up. They're going to make them sick to their stomach the next time they get meat. This time they're going to get meat. Um, and again, there's both natural explanations for it. The quail are coming. It, it is something that still happens, and they fly low, and they're in the bushes, and Egyptians used to capture them on the bushes, and people could get it natural. Uh, people used to say that uh, the manna was excretions from insects. Right. That's why they asked what it was, manna. Well, they, that's the word, is I basically, huh? And that's, that's the word means, huh, is right here. And the way they describe it doesn't taste like insect secretions. So it's kind of another dig when people do that. I'm like, where do you come from? You know, these, I had a professor in college that ate bugs, though. Um, interesting guy. But um, it was an insect pest management class, and he did give the bugs um, dip. And uh, something amazing about that. Anyway, we'll go another time. I'll tell you about Skoll in Copenhagen. And that, that, that's, a, that's a different lesson. Unrelated to Moses in the wilderness here. Uh, and what will, kill a, what will kill a cockroach and what won't. Uh, but either way, here they sit there. And, and, and we're going to see manna come on the scene and quail. And it says, then, then said the Lord unto Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. You can take God's word at God's word. When God says, I'm going to rain bread from heaven, that means God is going to rain bread from where? And it's probably not going to be insect secretions. It's going to be from heaven, like he told us. Um, 
And the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day that I may prove them whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall come to pass that on the sixth day they shall prepare that which they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. What are we watching? Gather what you need for the day. Day six, gather double so you don't have to work on the Sabbath. God is going to institute the Sabbath, and within a couple weeks we're going to see the law, and he's going to really lock in on keeping the Sabbath holy. And so he's helping them grow to the point that he wants them to be at. Um, by the way, when you're a slave in Egypt, the Pharaoh is not honoring the Sabbath. So they haven't honored the Sabbath up to this point. They've worked seven days a week. Taskmasters are not interested in your religion, and Pharaoh's proved that as well. And so they haven't been able to honor uh, the Sabbath or even know to do that. Um, and Moses and Aaron said unto all the children of Israel, At even then ye shall know that the Lord hath brought you out from the land of Egypt. Now why in the world would God have to prove himself again to a people that he's miraculously pulled out of Egypt, miraculously caused to sea, he's turned bitter water into sweet water, and yet again they need proof that God actually brought them out of Egypt. And we think to ourselves, what a ridiculous group of people. And yet we have all of God's word, and we sit here, and we cast out the same complaints against God when our circumstances don't line up with what we want them to be and forget about everything God has done. He keeps going on. And in the morning, then you shall see the glory of the Lord, for that he heareth your murmurings against the Lord. Notice how Moses is telling them. They've complained to Moses and Aaron, and Moses says, you're complaining against God. He links it right away to him. And what are we that you murmur against us? And Moses said, this shall be when the Lord shall give you in the evening flesh to eat. That's the quail. And in the morning bread to the full for that the Lord heareth your murmurings, which you murmur against him. And what are we? Your murmurings are not against us, but against the Lord. Just in case you missed it the first time, you are going against God. And Moses spake unto Aaron, say unto all congregation of the children of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he hath heard your murmurings. And it came to pass, as Aaron spake unto the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And so we're going to actually get to that in chapter 17, how they're going to say God is not with them anymore. And again, here in chapter 16, in this wilderness, God is showing them that his glory is there, and he's going to take care of them. What is the answer from God? Permanent manna and temporary quail. And then 11 through 36 is what I call actualization for the people. This is where God said, I will do this. And then 11 through 36 is how it happens. I'm going to read a few of those verses uh, to get us a gist of it. 15 says this, when the children of Israel saw it, speaking of manna, they said one to another, it is manna, for they wist not what it was. By the way, they lived in this area all their life. If it was bug excretion or something else of a fruit, they would know what it was. They don't know what it was, pointing to something from heaven that was miraculous. And I just say that because a host of people will say something different, and they're just not reading Scripture at face value. And Moses said unto them, This is the bread which the Lord hath given you to eat. I'll look through 16. This is the thing which the Lord hath commanded. Gather of it every man according to his eating, and omer for every man according to the number of your persons. Take ye every man for them which are in his tent. So in other words, if you've got two kids, and I've got five kids, you get four omers, and I get seven omers. And if you have more kids than that, you get more. And if you have less, you get less. God has said, this is what you gather per individual in your tent. Now, we go on to 19 and 20. And Moses said, let no man leave of it till the morning. Don't hold on to it. 
Notwithstanding, they hearkened not unto Moses, but some of them left off until the morning, and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was wroth with them. In other words, Moses was furious at them for disobeying a direct command. Jump forward to 23. And he said to them, This is that which the Lord has said, Tomorrow is the rest of the holy Sabbath unto the Lord. Bake that which you will bake today, and seethe that you will seethe, and that which remaineth over lay up for you to be kept until the morning. In other words, double gather today, prepare it. And they laid it up till morning, as he said, and it didn't stink, neither was there any worms in it. And Moses said, Eat that today, for today is a Sabbath unto the Lord. Today you shall not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, in it there shall be none. 27 and 28 are critical. And it came to pass that there went out some of the people on the seventh day for to gather, and they found none. And the Lord said unto Moses, How long refuse ye to keep my commandments and my laws? Gather what you need. Don't have any extra. Day one, what do they do? What do they do? Get extra, and it stinks, and it's vile. Day six, gather two days' worth of what you need. What do they do on day seven? Go out to gather. What are they, what are they showing? Distrust. What else are they showing? Lack of obedience, right? I put lack of listening. You ever had that with your kids? And I hate to use my kids as an illustration, but they're just easy targets right now because they're not here, right? You ever tell your kids something, they do the exact opposite, and you're like, are you listening to me? And what do they usually tell you? <laughs> I feel like Bob Price has been a kid way too long, 60-some years. <laughs> He's just stuck with it. You pray for Tamara. It's a tough, tough gig she has there. <laughs> right? They don't listen at all. What do we see here? When you're told not to take extra, you take extra. When you're told not to go out on day seven, you go out on day seven, what do you have? Lack of what? Trust. Trust, but what are they not doing? Obeying. Obeying. Lack of obedience. I want you to see something here. There's a lack of obedience, but it's a word a guy wrote. There's a lack of precise obedience. God said, gather this amount. And they said, we gathered we gathered, like you told us, but we gathered the amount we wanted. Here's a thought question. How precise is your obedience to God? Uh, my youngest son, Clayton, um, he's chock full of personality. Um, interesting enough, and, and there's no escaping it, right? He can't escape his parents, but Heather will remind me a lot of times, she says, he has a lot of Van Hoven traits. Um, all of them do, but his are right on the surface. Um, and you can see it. And I, I, it makes me laugh a little bit because I actually am, am watching growing up. Like, I'm like, wow, you couldn't be any more like this brother or any more. And Heather's like, not any more like you. You do the same things. I'm like, well, I don't see my faults, but I do see my brother. So this works out well. Um, he actually wants to please you. He really does. He wants to make you happy. But he also wants to do things his way. So it's fascinating to watch him. Um, and, and at times, I'll interrupt him, and this is how the statement goes. I said, I want you to do this now, this way, and I don't want any other ideas or concepts of how you can approach obedience from your perspective. Now, I don't add the long part at the end. I say, do it this way, do it now, and I want no more ideas. I don't, I don't want your idea of how you can do this. 
Because Clayton, with all his personality and talking, will hear a task and then reinterpret the task in light of how he thinks this will be fun to do. So if I say clean up your room, which rarely that's something I'm telling him to do, usually Heather's saying that, he decides that jumping over the couch, going under the table, playing basketball outside, petting the dog, and maybe getting to my room, where I then tell Avery to clean her stuff up, would be the perfect way to obey my dad. That's, that's what he wanted. When he said clean the room, for sure that's what my dad wanted me to do. Ultimately to delegate to my sister after having a really good time doing whatever else I wanted to do. And I know that kids are different and all the same, right? Because every one of you can think of like, wow, that's, that happens in my household. And here's the interesting thing. God makes really clear to the nation of Israel as he gives them a response to their complaining that he wants things done his way. I put, we need to obey God, God's way. We don't obey God our way. And that's what precise obedience means. I'm not talking about how God is picky pants. And if you don't have your, it's not like the military. If your shoes not shine perfectly, boom, you're doing push-ups a million times over. It's saying that God expects precision in your obedience. That I don't go to God and tell him how I will obey him. He wants me to obey him his way. That's why he wants precise instructions. So we will obey precisely. Now, you're going to close out chapter 16. Moses and Aaron collect a sample to be kept through the years as a testimony. Yet another miracle. If the stuff rots after a day, except on day six, and it's going to be kept for generations as a testimony, and it's apparently not rotting there. And then they head out of the wilderness of sin, and we're going to get to Rephidim, or however that may be pronounced. And we find yet another catastrophic problem is... We have no water. But they've learned their lesson by now, right? Which you know is not true because there's a complaint again about water and it happens round two. Um, And here's what's fascinating. They ramp it up this time because now they take water all the way back to Egypt. So all the congregation, verse 17, of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeys according to the commandment of the Lord and pitched in Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Wherefore, the people did chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord? And I, I want you to see something about Moses' character. Is right away, he is extremely discerning about who the sin is against. By the way, if you think Moses gets off uh, later on, and we're going to see him strike a rock. Later on, he's going to strike a rock, and God's not letting him in the promised land. So you look at the standard that he has, and God tells him, you sinned against me when you struck the rock. You didn't just exercise your frustration. And notice something. It sounds like God's being awfully tough on Moses, but the fact is, is this. Moses' frustration was not with the people. It was with God, and God punished him for it. So he had a high standard he had to live up to. But he was discerning as he led the people. He says, look, you're tempting the Lord. You're going against God. You're attacking God with this. And the people thirsted there for water. And the people murmured against Moses and said, wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? What do they just complain about with food? We're going to die of what? Hunger. And the second we're thirsty, we're going to die of thirst. Why did you bring us 
from slavery to die of thirst. Why would you do this? And Moses cried to the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. They're ready to kill Moses. Over what? A lack of water. Have they not seen God take bitter water into pure water, take water and split it open, take water and kill the Egyptians, send food from heaven that they're still eating every day, by the way. It's not stopped. They're still eating manna from heaven. And they're ready to kill God's man, the leader, that they're speaking for God because they're thirsty now. And I'm not going to deny that they're very thirsty. And the Lord said unto Moses, go on there, go on before the people, take with thee the elders and thou, and thou bring your rod that you smote the river, take in thy hand and go, and I'm going to go before thee, and then they're going to hit the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it that the people may drink. And he does so in the sight of the elders. And he called the name of the place Masasa and Meribah because of the chiding of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And I put here, they are saying when they get thirsty, we'd rather, again, why did you bring us here to die instead of letting us die in slavery? They are now saying to Moses, we're going to stone you. And Moses is instructed, and I put it to attack the rock. Hit it. So the water comes out. And again, keep this in mind, because later on Moses is going to be instructed to talk to the rock, and he's going to hit it, and God's going to honor his strike and send water out. I've seen him strike it a couple times. But God's going to punish him for his disobedience because that frustration was expressed against God. His complaint, his wrong action, his glory stealing, because he took the glory in that moment the second time is there. Uh, The name of the place is changed to reflect their complaining. Could you imagine if you did that on all the trips you took with your kids or yourself? I mean, Heather would have to rename the whole going northern Virginia. Many times I've complained about traffic. Kenny complains again, 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 again. And now I wonder why my 16-year-old son starts talking and pontificating about traffic. And Heather just looks at me and says, thanks for nothing. You know, you've created this. (laughs) And I'm looking and saying, wow, you should have stopped me. (laughs) You know, and she says she tried, but I didn't listen. Um, but look at verse 7 again, the end of it. What was their question, or who were they questioning? What was it? But what specifically? Is he among us? Do you remember two weeks ago, how was God's presence known? Do we still have a pillar of fire and a cloud? Did we not just see God's glory in the cloud before they got the manna? And they're asking or they're questioning, is God among us? And then I put this question, have you ever been guilty of doubting God's presence even when he's made it abundantly clear he will never leave us or forsake us? Hasn't God told us that? And you might say, oh, I don't see a cloud by day and fire by night. But you have the New Testament that says, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. In the Great Commission, it says, I will be with you how much? How long? Always. Always. So when we doubt God's presence... And we say, I don't know if God's around, God's so distant, God's this, and you start throwing all the accusations against God. What are you telling God, in essence? He's a liar. Because he said he's always with you. And you're saying God's not with you, then you're saying God has what? He's lied to you. He's not keeping his promises. And I want you to see something, and I'll go back to the map here, because we're going to land... 
as we move closer, and we're going to get to Mount Sinai, and there's going to be a lot of things taking place. The law, uh, uh, some gross perverse sin takes place, and we're going to get a tabernacle. And we'll move on. Actually, before we move on, we're going to get all of Leviticus, and that'll be in the fall. We'll go through that. Which Leviticus is a fascinating book, by the way. I think I mentioned this to you. It is the last book read by most Christians, and it was the first book required of every Jewish boy that they had to read. That, that's the book they went to was the law. And we're going to be, uh, as a Christian community, we'll read that last. But I want you to see something about how we complain as we move through here. What is this complaint against? It's against God. And the people of Israel repeat over and over again that they're complaining against God. They don't trust God. They disdain or undermine his character. You just, you're just, I would rather be in Egypt. I'd rather die of a plague than to be here. And then number three, they, they look to God and say, I don't even see you anymore. I don't see your presence. And they're literally looking at fire and a cloud and saying to God, you're not here. I don't see you. And then we say, well, I don't see God in fire. I don't see God splitting the Red Sea for me. I don't see God making bitter water sweet. And I would say, point to the New Testament. You watch everything that's unfolded as we read the Old Testament, the New Testament. We see his promises. We see him die on the cross for our sins. We know all these things. And we'll turn around and say, yeah, God, God's not for, God's abandoned me in this life. God's never abandoned you. I'll be with you always. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And I put here, I think we can see that we act more like Israel than we have ever thought. We complain like they do, but we also miss the weight of our complaints and what it indicates about our hearts. And this is the point I'm hoping to make. Not just that we notice how Israel sinned, but instead we become discerning about how we talk and what it indicates. So remember I said complaining has a deeper spiritual indication. And so this is the thing that really struck me or, or, or the conviction that hits there is that my own personal complaining is attack on God. I'm either not trusting God or I'm undermining God's character or I'm saying God is not here, all of which are attacks against God. And what you need to do as a believer is to be discerning of what your words are saying. Our complaints show our distrust of God, disdain for God's character, and doubts of his presence and promises. And if we're discerning about our complaints, we'll be able to see the subtle lies planted. Who's planting those lies? We're planting those lies. Other people will plant those lies. If you're ever in a discussion and someone tosses out to you the, the discussion of God and evil, explain how a good God that's all-powerful can allow evil. And there's actually not an easy answer. Thus, the 42 chapters in Job, right? It's a, it's a wrestling. But you know what the answer is to someone that asks that question that way? Explain evil without God then. Explain how this world works without God. Because that's what they're asking, proof of God. They're saying evil disproves God. And I say, okay, prove that to me. Because we are very cavalier with what we expect God to do, but forget that the question comes back to us, which is actually one of the lessons we learned from Job. In the end, Job has no question answered. What does God do? All for multiple chapters. Ask him questions. And you know the wisdom of Job? What does he do at the end? He says, I'm going to shut my mouth, basically. And he knows who God is. And here's the reality. 
we need to recognize as we watch the poison of complaints come in, and this is what it is, it's either planted by us, it's planted by others, and it's planted by Satan. Because he is the author of discouragement and doubt. Here's the reality. Doubt is not how God works. Doubt is the work of Satan, and it's the work of our sinful system. We doubt God. He doesn't plant doubt. What does God do? What does the Holy Spirit do? Does what? Convicts confirms, convicts. It works a different way. And so we watch these complaints and these doubts, and this is not how God works to grow us. This is how we work. This is how others work, and this is how Satan works to attack God. And here's the thing. You plant those subtle seeds, you do it, others do it, Satan does it, and it bears a horribly poisonous fruit that bears eternal consequences. So I hope that as we're Working through that, that kind of wraps us up, and I'm actually on time for the first time in probably 52 weeks. Um, I'm not saying I'm early, I'm just on time. Um, but we're going to dive into our programs. I, I really, as we walk through the wilderness with Israel, and, and you wonder, why, why does God um, purposely record this for us? Because that's what he did. This is, this is listed here. Uh, there's, no other, there's no other gods that record the failings of all the chosen people. But he does it, we see this complaint, and, and Moses was brilliant or gifted by God uh, to see that their complaint wasn't against him, it was against God. And as believers, we need to be discerning of how our conversation and our frustration is not just us maybe crying out, but us crying against God. And it doesn't mean you're just supposed to shove everything down and not talk to God about it, because you're supposed to talk to God about it. It's just be discerning about the depth of what this indicates. And so as we deal with the distrust we might feel towards God, we address that sin, and then be surprised as your attitude and perspective changes how he gives insight into the issue that you were at distrusting him about. Or when we go and basically attack his character, we deal with that and then watch as his character is lifted up, how that sheds light on the situation that was confusing before. It's just being discerning in how we do the same thing that Israel does. And let's not just keep repeating it over and over again. Because that's why I wanted to list complaint about water, complaint about food, and yet again, a complaint about water. And how it's just the cycle that will continue.